right. How many of you enjoyed that meal tonight? Let's give the dining hall a round of applause, okay? See, we all have results of this meal. For you, it is don't fall asleep. For me, it is don't fall asleep because we are, are, are all in uh, challenge here. I'm not sure who ever thought of the idea to have a big banquet meal and then go preach, but it is, <laughs> and it's okay, so... All right, let me state the obvious. How many of you noticed my face? How red it is. So you got three options. First, Marty's highly embarrassed. Two, the Shekinah glory is right here. Three, I love my grandkids and spent two hours in the sun and told my wife, get some stuff because I'm going to have a problem tonight. So... Thank you for putting up with that. And uh, so I hope you're having as good a time as we are here at camp. And uh, we've had a great time and hope that'll be the case. Some new campers that have come in and some that have left. Can't spend the whole week, but had the privilege to get to know a good farming family. So you got me educated tonight about farming because I am from Los Angeles, California. And I thought all good corn came right out of Ralph's grocery store and had no idea of all that went into getting that. So, uh, so for a California boy that grew up, and my big goal in life was to become a short order cook and live on the beach. And so Huntington Beach up to Malibu all the way down to Newport Beach. And uh, so graduated midterm my senior year in high school. And because uh, I had enough credits, because my mother worked for the Los Angeles School District, and she worked all summer and didn't want me as a ninth grader, a 10th grader, an 11th grader to run around, so she made me go to summer school. So by the time my senior year, voila, I had enough credits. And so finished my senior year, and I was done with college. I was done with education. Why do you ever go to college? Who needs education? And uh, so worked for six months for Champion Trophy Company. And uh, that summer, uh, therefore, the end of my senior year, six months later, um, 1974, after six months working for Mr. Howell, he said, if you give me the next four years, I'll give you my business. I have one boy. He's a Jesuit. can become a Jesuit priest. And he doesn't want to... Um, do the business, and it was very lucrative, and, um, and so somewhere this thought of maybe I should go to Bible college, and so I said, no, uh, I, thank you, but I don't want to do that, and so very gracious people and very kind to me, and so I jumped into the opportunity to go to Western Baptist Bible College, which is now Corbin College in Salem, Oregon. And that's the first exposure I had to regular Baptists. I grew up a Baptist, but not in regular Baptist circles. Dr. Drollinger, and I had a Baptist uh, distinctives class. So I spent two years there. I jumped in uh, with an older senior who eventually became my 
brother-in-law, Steve Canfield, Life Action. And so uh, for two years, I ended up, I was going to do one semester, ran out of money, and, uh, and then I played basketball and baseball. They paid my way for the next two years. And I got tired of college. Who needs college? And then I left. And then I ran into uh, a 5-2 Eyes of Blue um, homecoming queen from Muncie, Indiana. And I was the bum under the bleachers that had big goals like go be a short order cook. And I met uh, Tammy Haney. At Life Action, and so that was the summer of 1976, and she began praying for me that I get my heart right with God, and it was August of 1976 that uh, everything changed, and so I had three weeks. I decided to join Life Action, and uh, that the guy that got me to Western, who became my brother-in-law, uh, also had was there, and so. Uh, I spent three weeks listening to hardcore preaching and, uh, man, flame-throwing preaching. Made, if you're familiar with Tom Farrell, you think of the hardcore preaching you could think of, and that's nothing compared to Del Fazenfeld, who started Life Action. Three weeks of that. And I thought he was mad every night. Like, why are you yelling? Like, I get it, okay? Just, you don't need to yell at me. So after three weeks, I got in a conviction. I went out the back door of a chapel similar to this and sat on a picnic bench and said, Lord, I'm done. And whatever you want to do with my life, you can have it. And, um, and so that really is the turning point in my life. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were the godliest people I knew. I have two older brothers. And so everything changed. I'm sure my mother's prayers were answered, and uh, then I met Tammy, and then uh, so for the next two years, we traveled hundreds of churches, many experiences that we saw God move in the hearts and lives of people. Unbelievable. And then in 78, going into 79, we both knew we needed to finish college, and she had been to Tennessee Temple. And cheerleader, homecoming queen, miss everything, and I was still at least a cleaned up, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, God, but whatever you want me to do. And so uh, I decided to go to Liberty University and took 22 hours and said, I'm going to get straight A's because I was a lousy student because who needs to go to college? And, uh, and so she wanted to go to Liberty, and her dad said, you can go wherever you want to go, but if I'm going to pay for it, you're going to Bob Jones University. And so I went to Liberty, she went to Bob Jones, transferred in after a semester, got my straight A's and decided um, there's a lot of good reasons why I go down to Bob Jones. One of them is my future wife. And so, and they had a camping ministry major there and they had a library and Liberty didn't have a library. And so I transferred down to Bob Jones. My youth pastor had said, that will be your undoing. As I was told, Bob Jones has pink and blue sidewalks. And so I was immersed into a very conservative world that I didn't grow up with. I thought Biola College was the strictest college in the world. And I told my parents that, who went to Biola in the 40s, my brother in the 70s, and said, who would ever go to a conservative college like Biola? And I find myself now, my wife and I, then she got married in 79, and, uh, and then we... Um, 
went to the wilds for their Camp Directors Institute program and then went on uh, to a little camp uh, of 400 campers a year and a little Bible college called Northland Baptist Bible College, 89 students. And so uh, almost 20 years later, four children later, we then ended up getting on a boat, okay, a plane, and went to Guam for the last going on 20 years. So that's our little story. We still are probably learning more than we're teaching. All four of our children are now married with children. And so I love it when I see my children having to deal with their children, our grandchildren. And, uh, and so I have learned one basic point, that God in his genius put males and females together. Now, he doesn't do that for everybody. Because there are some people that God's called them, some of the most wonderful people that have invested into our children's lives, were never married, but took our family on as part of their family. And my children would have never made it without them. Joy Angel, who oversees all the uh, missions, uh, for medical missions for, for Baptist missions, would be a case in point. Many of them. Some that we have known also that God had taken through the valley of divorce and, and their life is part of, that's their part of their narrative and God broke and used that. So what I want to give to you tonight would be maybe familiar to all of us. But I do know that there's a big difference between men and women. Let me illustrate this and before I do, we did a series years ago called Extreme Makeover when there was a, a series called Extreme Makeover. And so I took that idea, and I preached a five- or six-part series on the home, and I took these pictures as the home as a, what do we got there, Steve? As a hospital, and our, our home, we wanted to be as a hospital, and, and built off of that idea of Third John. And then I also took the idea of a harbor, that our home should be like a harbor, a safe place for our children to be able to learn and grow and be together. And then I also took uh, one message on a Bible school, uh, that our homes need to be homes in which we're teaching our children the Bible. And then we did a, a one on the gym, and that's the one I want to talk about tonight. And I also did one on a gas station, and that our home is like a gas station. It needs to be a place you can fill them up and then move them out. And so those were kind of the pictures. So if you're following me with this, I do know... And this message tonight is not anything other than just, I th feel like I'm going to say things to you that you would know what I'm talking about. So I'm, I feel like I'm saying the obvious. But I do know that all of us are a part of a family, whether, whether you are married, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, you came out of a family, and events that happened, as I talked about last night, on flawed families uh, that you want to find some, go to Genesis. They're chucked full of families that are not perfect. Our family is a broken family. I'm thankful for what God has done in and through Tammy's life, my life. When I met Tammy and I got right with the Lord, I was reading my Bible 10 minutes a day. I thought I was a spiritual giant. The more I got to know my wife, she was reading her Bible and praying for two hours. I said to her one time, what do you talk about for two hours to the Lord. I, it's like beyond my comprehension. You find us today, and you go to Ankeny, Iowa, 414 Northeast 28th Street, and I guarantee you somewhere in the morning time before I get gone, you'd find her in one chair, and you'd find me in another chair, and I could sit there for two hours, no problem. That doesn't make me a spiritual giant. I'm just telling you that that's like a part. 
I do know that there's differences between men and women. Let me give you a couple of them because I think they would make sense to you. One of those would be a picture like this. Do you see the policeman? And you see the Dodge truck? And you see the pump? That's a woman driver. A woman sent this to me, okay? Let me show you another picture of a woman driver. Let me show you another picture of a woman driver. And then this is the fourth slide that this lady sent to me, so I want you to use this. This is why women live longer. Pickup truck, two-by-fours propped up, the guy's underneath there welding his gas tank. So understand that I'm going to state the obvious, but I'm telling you, most of the marriage counseling Tam and I have done over the years is uh, related to the differences between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, and all that comes together. But somehow God welds this together, and sometimes humorously, Juanita Purcells, who is a Christian lady who speaks often, uh, had uh, years ago, I remember her telling the story about she had to get out to a lunch uh, uh, to speak for a bunch of ladies. She was getting ready. Her husband was getting ready to change the oil in the car at the house, and she was trying to fiddle with getting her dress, and there was a zipper in the back, and she said, honey, would you just like get that zipper up for me? He goes over and, you know, he's not stressed. He's not going to speak. And he, he just kind of plays around and zip, zip, zip. And, well, the zipper busted. And she's got to get out the door. So she's very frustrated. And so she uh, changes the dress and out the door she goes. And later at lunchtime, she drives up and she sees her, her uh, husband under of the car and his legs sticking out from the car and he's working on the car. And she's kind of a kind of a prankster, so she reaches down and grabs his fly and zip 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 and goes on in the house, walks in the kitchen, and here's her husband. <laughs> and she says, Honey, what who who is that out there? I said, Oh, that's that's our neighbor, Joe. He, I couldn't get it, and he's willing to help me with that. And so she said, you know what I just did? Well, they both run out there, and they grab him by the ankles and pull him out from underneath that car. He's got a big old goose egg right here, knocked out cold. So, uh, so things happen. And, uh, and I'm sure you have plenty of stories if we could have sat around your table. We all have funny stories that I think, you know, humor is the shock absorber of life. And so it's a good thing to be able to laugh through. So some of the things, again, tonight I want to talk about in your notes, I put it under the idea of a stone because we're talking about stones like your bag of faith, the idea of killing giants, facing your giants. We talked about patience. We talked last night about submission, and which I think is core to, to really a victorious Christian life. But I put this one under intelligent love. And the reason why I did was because in Philippians 1, Paul said, I pray for you that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and wisdom. 
the idea, listen, the idea is there is spiritual intelligence. Paul said, I don't just want you to be able to love because love is more than a feeling. Love is an act of the will that engages my mind and eventually affects my emotions. So when I, Paul said, I'm praying that your love would grow, but it would grow in intelligence, spiritual intelligence that you would be able to know how to love. Love is not a feeling. It's an act of the will that eventually affects your feelings. And when I was 21 in a psychology class at the Christian psychologist that pounded on that, and I'd never heard that before because I grew up in L.A. where everything, if you love somebody, you had a feeling. If you didn't have a feeling, then you certainly don't love because this is what our whole world ends up carting off to all of our families is, you know, love is a feeling. And so that's why you can fall out of love and therefore fall out of the commitment to marriage. And all through the scriptures, there's a constant act of love including God himself, that God so loved the world. So if you could understand that, you could understand that we have responsibilities as parents. And those of you that have influence on, on other families and in your church, understand that of all the home, the pictures of the home, one of them is a gym. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I jotted down three critical lessons because it does take discipline through the Spirit, to become godly. I remember years ago asking a good friend, Willard Lonis, who had two twins, five-year-old boys that were in our home, and they were visiting us, and Willard and his wife were in the kitchen, and his two boys were out in the living room, and I, as I often will ask many questions of people, and these little five-year-olds, and I said to them, hey, boys, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're the only boys that have ever said to me, when I grow up, often they would say, and there's nothing wrong with this, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a doctor. But they said, I want to be a man of God. Really? I went over and later told Willard, I said, man, you know what your boys just told me? They want to be men of God. My hat's off to you. Is that not what you want for your children? And I'm going to tell you something. As our children grew up, that was my goal we nudge them towards the ministry. I don't call them to ministry. And I'm thankful. Our oldest two girls married awesome guys that are in ministry. And my third-born son is a, is a coach at Lancaster Bible College. I'm so happy for them. But I'm just as proud of my son, Miles, who's in the Air Force. So that's not a sign of anything other than I want them to be men and women of God. And I still say it to them today. I tell them, listen, I don't want you just to have good kids I just don't want you to have godly kids. I want you to have godly grandchildren so that you can continue on the legacy that God calls us to. This is generating godliness in a fallen world. And so part of this is creating this gym-like attitude, whereas I jot in my notes, every home needs to be a training camp preparing our children for the, for the Christian race and the race of life. And this isn't about religious asceticism. In other words, just attaching spirituality by personal discipline. It's recognizing a critical um, understanding of giving up my personal rights 
for relationship with the Lord and a willingness to do whatever he calls us to do. So every strong family member, you've got to give up your personal rights and be willing to say, it's not about me. It's about who the Lord is through each one of us. So if you understand that, this is why I think 1 Corinthians 9, which is in the context of this, Paul, who's encouraging uh, a people group there at Corinth that understood all about disciplines because of the Isthmus games, and he uses that picture, and I personally think Paul loves sports. He uses it regularly as a metaphor. This is one passage, and I think I have other references to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, also Philippians 3. But let me just highlight this, and, and I think for most of you, okay, and let me go back to what I said on Sunday. The best families think about coming to family camp, quite honestly. So I, I'm trying to say this to you so that I'm reaffirming some things and encouraging you as you go into a new fall year. For those of you that homeschooling or private school or public school, you are their coach. And you are in a place, particularly us as men, to help our children gain this discipline through the Spirit of God that helps us not just for now but for eternity. This is why 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says to them and takes this picture and says in verse 24 through 27, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receives the prize. So run that you would obtain. And every man that it strives for that mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. Therefore, you run not as uncertainty. So fight not as one that beats the air, but I keep my body under and I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, why is he saying this? I think, first of all, he was trying to help these people understand that you've got to instill the need for self-regulation, self-restriction. Paul said and uses the term temperate. Literally, the term temperate, it means to restrict liberty voluntarily. It means the self-control and correcting of weaknesses. And Paul asked if they do it for this corruptible crown. And they all knew at Corinth that if you were to win any kind of awards, we would know as the gold medal or the, or the wreath, that it wasn't just gaining the wreath and stepping up on the bema, which today you can still go to Corinth and see the bema that's probably a foot taller than this, about the length of, of uh, this this uh, platform right here, and it still sits in Corinth among the ruins. And understanding that with this came the recognition, which would first mean you're a citizen of that city. And if you're not a child of God, then, then that is, has to be first established with a relationship to Christ that Paul established, that he, he, you're not just the natural man, 1 Corinthians 3, and not just the spiritual man, which he wanted him to be, having the mind of Christ, but he didn't want to be carnal men, 1 Corinthians 3. And so with that said, Paul's saying, listen, you've got to instill the need for self-regulation, being temperate in this, because there will be a reward. It's not just standing on the bema and the isthmus 
uh, at the Isthmus Games, but you also end up having the wreath. And on top of that, you'd also have tax frees for the rest of your life and a seal that was put on the wall of your house establishing and recognizing you. This was a motivation for people to say, you know what, I'm living beyond my life and I want to be in a place that, that not just being commended for these, these Olympic athletes or the Isthmus Games, but also to the persecuted Christians, that they are in a place of great need. That temperance is needed. You're limiting your own personal choices. This is why you help your children to learn to take a no. You want to know what level your child is by maturity is helping them take a no. It's interesting to me when you look at the life of David that towards the end of his life, God initially through the prophet said, you can build the temple. And shortly after, it was reneged and said, no, you can't, but I'll let your, your son do it. And David, in his immediate response, we had to take a no. He immediately began gathering all his personal wealth and the nation's wealth and had it all laid out. So by the time Solomon came along, he had everything ready to roll. How do you take a no? This is why it's a good thing to tell your child no. Number two, it's not just that you're instilling the need for self-regulation, but number two, you're refining the skill by responsible training. This is why he uses the picture of that training for that beyond the corruptible to the incorruptible, and so he uses these metaphors of running, long distance, not as uncertainly, there's a purpose, and the idea of fighting or, or wrestling and also of boxing and beating of the air. All of this is refining of the skill by keeping under. Do you see the phrase, I keep under? That discipline, but keeping my body under, literally, you're giving it a black eye. You're restraining the flesh. And this only means to an end. It's not the goal, but it's a way to achieve it. That discipline is not a display of our devotion, as Les Olala used to say. It's a declaration of our dependence. It's the idea of being in a place to say, God... I have responsibilities. This is why you give your children chores, and they have yard work, and they have schoolwork, and, and the best college students across the board are those that have gotten involved in extracurricular activities, whether that is sports, whether that's music, or whether that's both. And I was talking to my good farmer friends from Iowa, and uh, the best people that we've ever hired over many, many years of hiring thousands and thousands of people, whether college or camp, full-time, part-time, they've always been from people, actually, that are from off a farm, homeschoolers, or they are from people that have got this point that there's discipline there. And you can immediately see it. They get this idea, and it's keeping under Number three, understand as well that this Paul is encouraging progress by remembering the goal. And what is the goal? The goal is not something temporally, but 2 Timothy 4.8, it is that crown of righteousness. And we as a good coach, as a good example, are trying to show people the way not with uncertainty. We're trying to do that so that ultimately... 
that I myself won't be a castaway. I won't be cut out of the ring. He switches metaphors to fighting because he says, I want you to hear, well done. Now, this should be obvious too. So I'm just restating for you, for those of you that are saying, I want my children to be a success that I don't care whether that's business, whether that is full-time ministry, whether that is whatever profession, these are critical to the success. It shows up in their hiring. And so I I just want to remind you that within the family, we've got to create, in essence, a gym. It's not just the only picture, but it is a critical picture to help us understand that when we get in a place to say, God, I really want to be used. I want my family to be used. So this got me thinking about, okay, let, let's think about families in the Bible. And I went all the way back and, and years ago heard a simple outline on the first family, Genesis chapter 2. I think this is in your, in your notes right here. And let me just give this to you uh, uh, because it, I'm sure this has got to be familiar to you. But, but the first time I heard this, I thought, man, that's so simple. But it, it made a lot of sense to me that the first family exercised themselves by God himself. Well, he put this man in a perfect environment. Uh, he was a perfect moral man, but not moral in his character. Because his choices revealed it. So what ended up happening? Genesis chapter 2. In fact, if you have your Bible, look there. I'm sure a familiar text to you that maybe not, maybe you haven't noted these, but I think they're really, really helpful. Because even in this perfect environment, God still gave these elements. And I think that if you're starting out as your little ones, or maybe you're looking back with the older ones, and you get the opportunity, as we are getting to do, to influence our own children, grandchildren, that these are four words that I kind of, I jotted in my Bible years ago that helped me when I saw this is how God took his first family, and this is what he ended up doing. Number one, God gave man a responsibility. You see in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. It's the idea of dressing and keeping his responsibility, and he had a responsibility. He had to stand with the task at hand. He had to till and keep the garden. He had to give the animals names. He was responsible. And this stewardship that he had of a responsibility led him also, God gave him a restriction. And when you take a society and you have no restrictions, you have no law. And for God, knowing you have this man in this perfect garden of Eden, that his priority was he had responsibilities. And with that, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shouldn't eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you're going to die. God gave him a a restriction. Here is a multiple yes and a solitary no. Here's all the things you get to do, but there's something that you, I'm asking you not to do. It's a restriction. Why did God give him that restriction? Why do you give your children rules? To protect them. God didn't sit up in heaven and think, oh, my word, Adam is way too happy. I, I, I'm telling you something. I, let's think of something here because he's way too happy. 
And your teenagers and my teenagers thought that. You, you, you think I'm way too happy, so we're going to create rules. That's why you did this. Obviously, you're doing it for your protection. And you'll end up finding, for anyone that has any children, more than one normally will say, yeah, one child is a little more bent towards finding out where that edge is. And they want to know where the edge is. Those of you that are grandparents, help your children. They're helping your grandchildren to enforce that. I regularly, I told my parents, uh, I told my children before they got married and after they got married, your children come along, it's your responsibility. I will help you. And regularly now, if our grandchildren ask us something, now we have three here and their parents are gone, so my, my wife does an awesome job with it. But if we're in their home, and they ask me, I normally say, you go ask your mom, whatever your mom says, whatever your dad says. Because they need that feel of a restriction with that. See, they can handle this, all this freedom. It's outside of that freedom. You're free within the boundaries that God gives you. So those analogies of, if I was to do a 100-yard dash and I, was, and I was within here and I started on this end and I said, I got a 100-yard dash and you're going to time me and by the time I get to about 40 yards, I run straight into a wall. And I start complaining about the wall. And you, and, and you say, well, that wall's there to hold up the roof. I know, but it's restricting me from doing what I want to do. Then I got to evaluate, I probably shouldn't be doing what I thought I should do, a 100-yard dash. It is not going to work in here. You are free within the boundaries in which God puts you. Your marriage, you're free within the boundaries in which you're married. Your child is free within the boundaries in which you set. So understanding this, that restriction leads to, thirdly, a reason. And God said that if you violate this, you're going to die. There is a reason for this. Somebody said rules minus Reason equals rebellion. And so many times children just ask. If they're asking accusingly, it's a problem. If they're asking questioningly, like, why this? Then give them a good reason for it. And so for God, I think looking at Adam, he knew he needed responsibility. He needed some restrictions. And there would be reasons for it because ultimately this innocent stage that couldn't be comprehended by Adam led to, therefore, a relationship. And that relationship was, of course, his own wife coming along. And his wife that was like him but Different, And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. The very word means soft and brought her into the man. And he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so often, some of you that counsel and help other marriages and people that struggle, really simple counseling principle. you got a relationship that is strained, a relationship that is an odd intention. Generally speaking, start asking questions. Is there any responsibilities that are not being taken care of for the man or the woman? 
for the man, and we have the full corpus of Scripture. We know that Paul said in Ephesians 5, he referred back to these same passages, and he had said for the woman to be able to show respect to the man and for the man to be able to love the wife. These are different needs, but is that not being done? My responsibility is to love my wife unconditionally, and I don't do a very good job at it. I should be better at it going on to 40 years. And it's either that or there's a restriction that's been violated. Somebody has stepped outside the bounds of that relationship. Or they've lost a reason for why we're even together. And so just generally speaking, you have a relationship that is difficult. This is one of those three reasons why. I remember years ago talking to a young couple that came in and we were visiting with them and my wife got helping the, the, the my wife got helping his wife and major struggles and this guy was local on island and she was a Howley, a white foreigner, a Caucasian and they got married and, and uh, struggles, they were in the church and, and so my wife was like trying to help this lady and I met the guy one time and he got so mad because she was starting to try and make changes that he came over to the house. It was like, I got to see my wife. Like, hold on, relax. So eventually, a few weeks later, I met with both of them and it struggles and I went through this. I said, what are responsibilities? Neither, both of you got to start working on. And there's their restrictions have been violated and there were some violations of that. And so their reason for marriage was they wanted to bail and Part of the reason was, finally, this guy comes to my office all by himself and see my wife won't ever come in. I said, well, tell me what happened. Well, they got another argument, and, and I said, who won the argument? He won the argument, because he always wins the argument. I said to him, I said, listen, brother, you're going to keep winning the argument. You won the fight, and you're going to lose the belt. You're going to lose your wife. And it wasn't a year later. She went off island. She never came back, and... It's sad. So I'm just encouraging you. I, I feel like I'm saying the obvious, but I want you to know that when Adam found himself not just cohabiting, he was in a place to say, God has given me this responsibility. Now, can I just for a minute, I don't think it's in the notes. I've just got a couple extra minutes, but it's always humorous to me because sometimes we forget as well that we as men and women, when I read this passage, that Adam was different than Eve, and that's what drew them together, that their difference is what united them. And I like what one guy ended up saying, and it, it stuck with me to help me be reminded that, um, that, that the differences is what drew them together. These differences are made by God not to divide us, but to unite us. And when Adam saw the difference... That's what attracted him. She wasn't like the giraffe with a long neck or a lion with long hair. She was like him, but different. And, and it's easy. It's easy for a husband or wife to take advantage and just assume perfection from either mate because we think that they're going to be just like me and they'd be thinking the way I'm thinking. And it's just not going to be. One author ended up making the statement, and he used in four areas because there was difference, differences between Adam and Eve as there is with us today physically, 
he used the idea of silk and steel, that silk is, is, is different than steel. Both of them um, are needed, important, but they're different. Or mentally, and one of that author that used the idea of wires and boxes, which is quite comical, those of you that have seen that, and understanding that, that uh, for men, we have little boxes. And for women, their thinking process is, is like wires, all round up, all intertangled together. So life is everything affecting everything. And for a guy, everything is in little boxes. When I heard him say this, I thought, that is so true. My wife sometimes will say, what are you thinking about? And I said, Nothing. And she cannot compute that. Like, you're thinking, no, I'm not, actually, I'm not thinking about anything right now. Because this is different. But it's needed. And obviously, emotionally. And they use the idea of a radar and a computer because women can see and feel and sweep the room and immediately know everything that's going on. And for the guy, he's totally clueless. And those emotions and intuition and, and sensitivity, and this is why for uh, men and women, these are needed. Now, these are just general, like talking about a car. There's differences on cars, but I think it's a good thing to know, even as Peter, who had a wife, who said, likewise, you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, not a lesser vessel, but being in place to know that we're different by design. We need to learn to forgive, forbear, and gladly accept each other by faith. The challenge is, is when a husband and wife move forward, and I appreciate Pastor Steve today challenging all of us about spiritually, when there becomes differences, and often for men, we have a tendency to want to kind of give that part over to the wife because she's going to then help with the children and take care of the children, and we kind of easily relegate all of it to her that there gets pressure because there's not a oneness with this. And understanding that that difference will create greater spiritual pressure. So I say this because as a family camp, every so often it's not a bad idea to know that these are the kind of relationships that if Satan himself can get in and divide as he did ultimately with the first family, that he certainly operates this way. And when you look at the New Testament... And, and all of the writers that are constantly uh, realizing the fact that, yes, we individually are going to answer to God. But if that husband, that wife, that meet and move forward in their journey together, that God wants it for life unless there's death. And at that point, those differences are not to divide. They're to complement. And it's a constant struggle. It's a constant because there's always differences. You say, well, you know, will there be a day that that'll never happen? If you're mortal, probably not. But you do learn to get it a little better. If you get nothing else, jot this statement down with this we close. And that is, as whoever made this statement is certainly true, and I've used it many times, that every great marriage is made up of two great forgivers. Every great marriage is made up of two great forgivers. When, when I read, forgive, forbear one another, 
that's not just relegated to a husband and wife, but it is applicable to a husband and wife. It's not if they're going to offend you, it's when they're going to offend you. And being in a place to say, God, am I willing to give up my rights for relationship? Because this was the point of Philippians 2, having this mind of Christ, that if I'm going to give up like Christ gave up his rights, I'm going to give up my rights for this relationship. And, I, and, and Tammy and I just got back a few days ago from Guam, and we were reminded just six or seven days ago, sitting at lunch with a young couple, that nine months before we left, so it's just about a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, that Tammy got a phone call uh, from, from uh, someone that, that is very involved in the island and said, would you be willing to talk to my daughter? My daughter's made some bad decisions affecting her marriage. And Tammy met her at the church, spent a few hours with her. And, uh, and I don't think they would mind me saying this, so Maria ended up coming to Christ. And she said, would you meet with my, my, uh, my husband? husband? And, and there was good reason why they shouldn't actually stay together. And Rick didn't know the Lord. And, and uh, so I met with them. And, and, and after a few weeks, Rick ended up coming to the Lord. And so for nine months, we met with him regularly, if not Rick, every week. And when we left, we had a chance to baptize him. Actually, the last Sunday we were at church and we haven't seen him for the last, whatever, 10 months. We unexpectedly go to Guam, and they heard we were on an island and said, can we do lunch? So for an hour and a half at Proa Restaurant, I listened to a young couple that um, have been feeding on the Word. I have a thread that I do with all my kids um, that I every day, not every day, but most every day, I'll send them a little something spiritually. Someone mentioned about solid joy and um, multiple apps, and I'll just send them a little something. And I, I've, for, for 10 months, have done that with Rick and Marie. And here you hear this young couple, and they're in tears, and they said, you know what? If it hadn't been for the Lord, I don't know where it would be. I know where they would be. They'd be separated. But here they are, so excited because they got a new little baby coming in about a month. Happy, settled, the Lord. The next day we did the funeral. Two days later we did the funeral, and their dad had, had come up, and uh, he was uh, the governor this last term, and... Uh, came up and hugged us, and, he, and I said, well, we had a great lunch with your daughter and son-in-law, and he just teared up. He was so thankful. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I, it's not about me because I would have given up a long time ago, but it's about what the Lord wants to do. Now, look, if you don't know the Lord, you could make it in your marriage, but, boy, when life's done, life is done. Life goes beyond what you see. And, and I would encourage some of you to say, but, you know, I've got struggles. There are pastors here. I don't know what church you end up going to, but it is not worth not tending to something. Tend to it. Talk through it. Work through it. It might be something so small, but we are patients in the same hospital, friends. And if Satan can do all he can to divide you, he knows it's going to affect your kids and it's going to affect your little community. It's going to affect your, your church and it's going to affect all of life. This is a good place to start dealing with it. God, thank you for your word and the time that we have. Thank you for these folks and the kind ear they're giving. Thank you for the words that have been said throughout this, these last few days and even as Pastor Steve that every morning 
or hearing of these areas that are so important for us and looking at Old Testament illustrations and finding the truth to be. And our arch enemy, our own little Goliath that so want to divide us. And um, I'm so thankful that uh, we can know you, that in Christ, just as the perfect picture of a marriage is we are the bride to Christ, that we as men are so often failing in that relationship. But I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us. Most of us as men always feel like failure nipping at our heels. None of us feel like we've always got it accomplished by any means. But help us to have that endurance and that patience and that surrender and submission. Be willing to be in a place to have that spiritual intelligence. To have that intelligent love communicating and say, will you forgive me? I love you. And those simple words that help so much. I'm certainly thankful for my own family. They continue to give us grace that we need. Just before we close and Chad plays, can I ask you, is it that God's spoken to you? Maybe it's tonight, maybe it was this morning, something this week, and you'd say, you know, Pastor, there are things that God's working in my heart and life, and we don't have it all together, but our desire is to be able to have a godly family. And you'd say, would you pray with me? I'd like to do that just before we close. You'd lift your hand and say, you know, in all humility, I appreciate it. Anybody else? You say, you know, in all humility, man, I'm, I'm working on it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Anyone else? You said, thank you. You know, God's just working on me. I hope and pray we can be able to help. Don't be hesitate to ask us, Pastor Chad, Pastor Steve, and others. We're here to help. God, thank you for this time. We're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.